Hi, this is Jamie Pride, and welcome to episode 24 of the Failure Proof Podcast. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore leadership, performance, resilience and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. If you are enjoying the podcast, then please spread the word and if you could rate us on iTunes, that would also be great. On this week's show, I am joined by Chris Hoyer. Chris is a serial entrepreneur and mentor who focuses on ecosystem thinking and innovation. More recently, he has been developing a new network advisory services agency called Mentor Bureau, which supports startups in finding product market fit and designing systems for smooth scaling. He is also currently serving as one of the entrepreneurs in residence for the Collider Accelerator program in Brisbane. Chris has launched or co-founded over a dozen different companies, including several creative agencies, a few software companies, a fashion modeling network, and a global not-for-profit known as Social Media Club, which enjoyed popularity around Australia for several years. In addition to serving as an IBM futurist focused on the future of work, he has spent the last few years as one of the lead mentors in Google's Launchpad Accelerator program. In this episode, myself and Chris speak about his views on what makes a sustainable startup and how chasing the next unicorn isn't always the right thing to do. We discuss how human capital is often more important than venture capital and his experiences at his time as the lead mentor at Google. We also discuss the future of work, including the impact that entrepreneurship has on the economy and the nomadic nature of the modern workplace. I've had the privilege of working with Chris at the Queensland University of Technology, and I'm sure that you'll take something away from this episode. And today on the podcast, I am joined by Chris Hoyer. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jamie. Very happy to be here. Mate, it's, um, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, obviously, somebody with your background um, is absolutely relevant to our audience. Um, look, tell us, just start by telling us a bit about yourself. Oh, man, uh, it's a really long story, so I'll try to do it short. <laughs> I, I grew up the uh, son of a sharecropper. Um, no, I'm kidding on that. <laughs> um, but no, I actually, I grew up, my, my mother and my father both had cerebral palsy. And so my mom, um, who I grew up with, my mom divorced my dad very early. So I was really used by my mom and my grandparents in a really, you know, kind of middle class neighborhood in Chicago, moved to Miami. And so I never had any entrepreneurs around me. My grandfather worked in a uh, machine as a machinist, um, helping to make uh, bombers basically for World War II. Wow. And then going on to a place called Continental Can, working on the machines that stamped out the caps for the tops of jars and bottles and stuff. No way. My grandmother was a, you know, a high school cook for a while. And uh, my mom, because of her handicap, really couldn't get work. She was really kind of left out. But she was this brilliant woman trapped in this broken body. But she taught me that I could do anything. And uh, she really inspired that belief in me. And I just happened to get around some other entrepreneurs. And of course, in the late 70s, early 80s, the CEO of companies was like this celebrity on all the magazine mm. covers and all that. So at some point early on in my life, um, before the 70s and 80s, actually, I uh, had this idea that one day I would have HHC, the Hoyer Holding Company. I didn't know what the heck it meant, really, right. except that I would have a lot of companies under my belt. So um, one of those companies is still alive, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not under a holding company right now. 
and at what at what age is this that you were you were a budding entrepreneur? Uh, around eight or nine, actually, is with, where I kind of had that thought. So. With your um, monstrous industrial empire, the Hoyer Holding Company. Does it, <laughs> did, did you actually register the Hoyer Holding Company? No, no, no. I never. I haven't done that yet. I might one day. You know, that's yeah. kind of the thing. Yeah, get out I'm, there. I'm still looking for the big hit. You know, I've been working. We've made some little things. Almost every time, I've been ahead of the market. Right. right. And that's the thing, really, and really having some vision and being able to see how things going. And my real gift is actually pattern recognition and being able to synthesize what I'm taking in quickly and be able to feed it back to people. That's why I'm working with startups now as an entrepreneur in residence, you know, here in Brisbane with the Collider program, because I really just love being able to listen to other people's stories, connect the dots to all these other things that have happened in the past, come up with new ideas and put it all together, like on the spot, like improv. Mm. And so that's kind of my superpower, I guess, is being able to do that. And I just get a lot of joy from doing it. And that's why I've started so many companies that were too early over the years. <laughs> and uh, But hey, every time I lose a lot of money, I end up coming out of it and making more at the next gig and the next gig and paying it off. So, you know, it works out. Sort of swings and roundabouts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roller coaster for sure. Uh, definitely. And so on the, from the streets of Chicago to the beaches of Miami, yes. um, when did you first sort of move into the, the world? Did you go to college? I did. I went to American University in D.C. Mm-hmm. I got a degree in communications, law, economics, and government, a double major, double minor. Wow. I was a class president, and I also was the bar chairman for the fraternity for a little while. And you did not become a lawyer. And I did not become a lawyer. <laughs> At the time, there were more lawyers in law school, or budding lawyers in law school, than there were practicing. And I realized one day that I'd rather be able to pay somebody $350 an hour mm. than actually just make it. Yeah. And I think everybody watched LA Law during that time and yes. all decided that they were going to go out and be budding lawyers. Yes. Um, and so after graduating from college, um, where did you go? Oh, man. I went back home. I had a bunch of weird jobs. I was actually a paralegal in the public defender's office for a little while down okay. in Dade County. Wow. Uh, visiting the jails and interviewing the people who had just been arrested, taking their stories back to the lawyers. I uh, ran a warehouse for one of my friend's moms. Uh, We were exporting and importing from the uh, Caribbean and doing that sort of stuff. I had a couple of guys work for me who didn't speak any English. So that was really fun. Um, But I learned the import-export business. I learned a lot of other stuff. And then I went to work actually for another friend's dad up in Philadelphia who ran a business putting people into business. Okay. So at about 23, 24, here I am, never having run a business, but I read One Minute Manager. And from that book and a couple of other common sense items, Mm. I was able to teach 50-year-old men how to run their own companies, even though I had never done so. Wow. So that's kind of really my first kind of taste of that, so to speak. And when was your first foray into, I guess, full-scale entrepreneurialism? A couple of years later, I was actually selling advertising for the Alternative Weekly in Miami, the New Times. Mm. And I had an ISP come in as a client in 94. Right. And it, I was just next up on the sales chart and I got to talk to him and I looked at it and I'm like, holy shit, this internet thing is going to be big. Mm. And so uh, literally every day after work, I would then go to the Borders bookstore and read every book I could about the internet, about what was happening to try to learn because it wasn't out in magazines and there wasn't really a web at this point. I mean, the web browser didn't even have tables for like stylized layouts at this point, right? Mm. So, uh, and there's very little information out there. You had to go to Gopher to actually get a lot of this stuff. Um, But I found one book, Virtual Community by Howard Rheingold, who became a friend and mentor of mine finally when I moved out to California many years later. But uh, I read that book and I'm like, this is going to be big. And at the end of the day, everything's going to be local. 
as much as it's global and everything else, it's about where do we go to get dinner? Where do we go to do our dry cleaning? What's happening tonight? And all that other stuff. So we built uh, Sobe.com uh, back in 94, launched in early 95. And uh, that was my first foray into entrepreneurship. We were doing an interactive agency because the thought was, if everyone's going to be online and be a part of this local content network, media company that we were building, they needed to have something to advertise. So they needed websites. But uh, we were a little too early on that because the real business of that came about four years later. Yeah. Uh, but we were building websites for small businesses. I did the city government. I, you know, we did some work with the Tribune Media Services. I actually, my, one of my favorite moments, though, which was really just kind of hella cool, um, we did the websites for Bombardier. So we did Sea-Doo and Ski-Doo and stuff like that. And so they flew us up on a Learjet to give a presentation to the entire board in Montreal at their headquarters. And nice. so uh, I showed up to the Learjet wearing sweats and a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else was dressed in like their suits and stuff. <laughs> well, it's always an advantage when your client is a private jet manufacturer. <laughs> yeah. I've, been waiting, I've been waiting for one of those. Um, of. That's fantastic. And so you, I mean, now everything's hyper-local. Right? Yeah. I mean, totally. like local, local and hyper-local is sort of the, the new black. Yeah. Um, and now it's sort of, you know, triangulation and Bluetooth LE and beacon technology. I mean, we're going to another degree of locality, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And more so and, and more uh, awareness of personalization and more need for people to have knowledge of what what's actually happening with your data. And people really don't know that. All they know is it's getting stolen left and right from all these vulnerabilities of just well, I won't get into the security stuff too much. Stay on the entrepreneurship side because there are some opportunities in that. Um, but certainly you look at what like uh, Disney's done with their magic band and mm. there's some really exciting opportunities just on the horizon. Totally. And so you do you think you're a natural entrepreneur or is it something you sort of grew into or you stumbled into or, you know, you've had to work at? You know, my my first title that I took for myself because, you know, I take a regular title. We're startups. We can mm. take whatever title we want. was chief idea guy. Right. right. And so that's kind of what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm an idea guy. I mean, when I was younger, even one of the first ideas I had was that I was at Disney World and I was riding that car ride, right, which is basically a car with a pole stuck onto some rails that you can't leave. Mm. And I said, why can't we do that on all the roadways? Why can't we just lay like a magnetic strip like they have on credit cards and put readers into cars to be able to let cars drive themselves, to have autonomous vehicles? Mm. Right. And uh, so I just, I, from a very young age, I, I just saw how the world could be instead of how it was mm. and was creative with it. So I'm, I'm more of a creative than I would say natural entrepreneur. Um, but I have that risk tolerance and I have the, the blessing of God is the only way to look at it mm. from being able to survive. Cause, you know, I've been down several times to where, well, obviously having negative self, uh, uh you know, negative worth, <laughs> as the poison it is, not self-worth, although actually I've been there too. We don't need to talk about depression today. We can talk about the other parts of the journey. Um, but uh, there's one time where I was down to literally a can of SpaghettiOs. And, uh, you know, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to make rent. I'm up here in D.C. at that point. I was working for the federal government and working on a new startup after I had left them. And, uh, you know, an $8,000 check came in from Palm. Right. And so all of a sudden I got the project and saved just in time again. It's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people look at the entrepreneurial journey with 
rose-colored glasses. So if you haven't really lived it, a lot of people have this stereotypical view that it's all glamorous. Um, however, when you speak to entrepreneurs, they've always got scar tissue. And, oh, yeah. You know, they've been on that roller coaster of sort of, you know, staring into the abyss. I think Elon Musk said um, that being an entrepreneur is like eating glass and staring into the abyss of death. He's a, yes. he's a really motivational guy. <laughs> I'm having his own challenges right now. Yeah, I wish yeah. he'd just deliver my car. Um, <laughs> uh, and and so you've had a your career sort of exploded after that, and you've had some really really interesting roles. Do you want to tell us about some of those? Yeah. Well, um, so again, multiple trends spotted over the years. I actually um, was working on one of the early conversational intelligence models. Uh, which became mo social media monitoring and more than that stuff, you know, behind that customer insight driven. But while I was at the Mint, I came up with a model that has really served me throughout and helped me get these sorts of roles. Um, but it was really just kind of discovering on my own the idea of a customer journey and how do we actually build loyalty instead of go to transactional sales. And so from that philosophy, I've now developed and I've been writing on ecosystem thinking. How do we actually serve the entire ecosystem? And a lot of that experience has come from these roles that I've gotten, but it really started with the unconference movement. Um, when the first bar camp happened, I got invited because a friend who was staying with me from Canada had uh, said, hey, let's go to this thing my friends are putting on. And I was like blown away by this unconference concept. And I'm like, we've got to bring this to business mm. because this is one of the solutions of business. Um, anyways, and at that point, I saw that like, we've got to do more of this. So we started building an organization, a nonprofit called Brain Jams. And we did one of these in uh, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. We did some in DC. We did it you know, in different cities around the country. And what I was finding is that we weren't pulling enough people out for the purpose of interdisciplinary learning, of just jamming with other people on kind of no pointed topics other than let's talk <laughs> yeah. and learn. So what I realized as I started looking around was that social media was just emerging or about to emerge. It certainly was going to be the next big thing as Web 2.0 was coming out and everything else. And I said, well, here's something where everyone's going to have to get together around. We're government, we're nonprofits, for-profits, big brands, small businesses, everyone is going to have to figure this out. So let's use that as a context for bringing people together. And so we took Social Media Club eventually to 350 cities around the world. Uh, it was in every city here in Australia, every major city here in Australia. The Brisbane chapter didn't get off the ground, but in Sydney, uh, even MC Hammer was brought in one time to speak. They had it at some <laughs> nightclub with 500 people. And uh, about a year later, I actually ran into Hammer on a plane. I was sitting next to him up in first class. I got bumped one time. Lucky entrepreneurs. Uh, <laughs> definitely not paying for that myself, but I got bumped. And uh, anyways, we had a good chat about it and what a great time he had and how like smart and amazing the people were in Sydney. And anyways, so so that led me into the role of uh, creating a network agency because I created, well, at first I created a social media agency uh, with the co-founder of, uh, oh my God, Text 100. Mm -hmm. If you ever heard of that as a global firm, it's now merged and it's become a couple other things. Um, but Mark Adams is just such an awesome guy and I was able to get him in. We worked on inventing the social media press release. So as part of a small working group with some top people in PR working on that. And uh, anyways, then I launched a network agency after all of that stuff because I didn't want to have the overhead of a traditional agency of the mm -hmm. ups and downs of client losses. So we, we learn these things as we go through not being able to make payroll and yeah. how do we avoid not making payroll? Well, don't have a payroll. That's <laughs> that is definitely it. one way to solving the problem. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. Um, anyways, that led me um, through my relationships and everything, become friendly with John Hagel, uh, who, of course, has written uh, Net Worth, Net Gain, so many amazing books. Absolutely. Uh, and become friends with him and, and uh, basically helped me get into Deloitte. And 
So I went there to help lead up their social business efforts for a while, and from that ended up helping them launch Deloitte Digital globally. So, yeah, and that's a, that's a connection we have in common. I know John really well, and you know runs Deloitte Center for the Edge. Yes, super smart guy. Um, you know, interesting. I mean, we both spent some time in management consulting. Um, yes. we've we've had the former CEO of Deloitte on this show. I agree. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. what was your um, what was your experience in in the Big Four? I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you, we're both sort of misfits to a certain degree. Yes. Um, in in sort of large corporate enterprises, but I think Deloitte is actually a really great training ground. Oh my gosh, so um, good for the way that you think. Um, I think critical thinking. I, I personally learn a lot in management consulting. Yes. Um, I, I think Deloitte is one of the more progressive. Uh, of the big four firms, um, and I really cherish my time there. Um, in the in the states, uh, did you have a similar experience? Uh, I did, um, but you guys here in Australia were much more advanced than we were mm. on a lot of things. In fact, of course, you had a division called Deloitte Digital, which yep. we ended up bringing together and turning into the umbrella. So, mm. um, and and with Pete, obviously, there's different sort of dynamic there. Now, that said, the the new Deloitte Digital as it exists today as it evolved over the last five or six years since I've left is incredible. Mm. And so I've been really impressed with what I've been seeing because I'm still friends with a lot of people there, yeah. as I'm sure you are. But what I really found is that I, I previously had a distaste for like the big four or the big firms and like how bad they can be. And they can be. And, and what it comes down to is who you're working with. Mm. It comes down to the people right around you and how does that make the experience. And so I was very fortunate to be working with like the U.S. CEO and, you know, some of the top people. In fact, Bill Briggs, who's the current global CTO mm. for Deloitte, is a dear friend of mine. And at the time, we were, were trying to figure out what's the phrase instead of social business. Yeah. And because that's not working and it people think it's like what you ate for lunch at work mm. instead of what you <laughs> ate for lunch at home. Uh, so what, what do we do? And we were working around the idea of the post-digital enterprise. Mm. Um, so the people I got to work with on a lot of this stuff were just amazing and at the top of the firm and, and amazing people. And I essentially got paid a lot of money to get an MBA. Yeah. And uh, I came away with a lot of great lessons. And, and of course, as everywhere else, there's some things that needed to be fixed and improved. And I had no uh, fear of saying that. In fact, one of the challenges I had was telling them all the time, like, I don't care. I want to do the right thing. You can just fire me. Mm. <laughs> like everyone was like afraid of me because I had no fears on that stuff because the fear of job loss is the one thing that keeps corporate employees. It is, but kind entre of entrepreneur, previous entrepreneurs don't have that fear. It's it's really strange. I'm similar when I work in yeah. corporate environments. Um, you know, I'm I'm so used to always being on the edge in terms of um, potentially losing a job or the company going under that it gives you maybe a sense of suicidal bravery. Yes. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but but I really enjoy. I, I think professional services part. Partnerships actually are quite good when they yeah. when they work well. I mean, one of the things I really enjoyed um, working in management consultancy is just just working with really smart people and smart problems. Right. You know, always. Um, and you know, I think that you kind of get an accelerated learning. You know, you sort of in in two, three, four years, you can essentially do the same amount of work that somebody would do at twenty years working in one organization. Yes. Um, you know, and and so look, I, I've I've sort of been I've sort of my personal journeys have been in and out of the corporate world, um, you know, as it's sort of suited me and when opportunities have come come along. So, so you ultimately um, found yourself leaving leaving Deloitte. Yeah, yeah. Going back into oh, the big I, I found world. out what the big problem was with work and big companies in particular. Mm. 
People don't do what they say they're going to do. <laughs> ah, agreements. Literally, it's the root cause of everything. And and there, and as we as we researched and went into it, a lot of the thinking behind it. And I'm so happy to report that many people disagreed with me because they'd never had a negative experience at work, which is kind of weird. But I, I, my my thought going in is because people are just malicious. They're backstabbing, political, conniving, power grabbing people mm. who want to be managing hundreds of thousands of people underneath them in mm. order to feel powerful. Mm. But the most common reason why is simply a lack of clarity, mm. um, forgetting because they have too much to do and they're overwhelmed and they can't do it. Mm. And so we built a system that's the last half million dollars that I lost, uh, that I still have some debt that I've got to pay off <laughs> at this moment. Um, but uh, we built a commitment-based management system uh, that would allow us to make a request instead of you know tasking people with things. So instead of me telling you, go do this report, I'd ask, can you do XYZ report? Here's my expectations of what it needs to look like. And then essentially facilitated that through the software. Do you accept or you don't accept yeah. and, and sort of negotiate the terms? Yeah. I, was, I was actually listening to somebody, I can't remember who, and they were talking about actually, you know, yeah. that one of the fundamental flaws inside businesses when it comes to relationships is commitments and agreements. Yes. And that a lot of agreements aren't quite – um, specific enough in terms of who's going to do what, when are they going to do it by and Correct. to what standard. And actually that um, conscious agreement um, or, or certainly the negotiation between two parties that something's going to occur and a lot of those um, conflicts or miscommunications that occur inside organisations are the result of Complete Correct. complete breakdown of or, or a misunderstanding between two people about whether or not there was an agreement. Yes, and that's why making it explicit in that mm. way was really important. And and then beyond that, uh, the company, by the way, was called Aligned, A-L-Y-N-D, mm. because what did everyone want in meetings? They want to well, be aligned with one another. I love it. Nice. And how do you get an entire organization aligned? Well, I've got two answers now, but you start off by one person with another person. Mm. And if everyone's operating in that culture and under that system – it's very easy to move forward, uh, you know, and keep everyone aligned and out of a lot of these disagreements and making sure people deliver when they say they're going to deliver so you, what they said they were going to deliver. So you start at the atomic level and work yeah, your way out. Exactly. It's interesting. I, I, um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by Jason Freed and of 37 yes. Signals Basecamp, the way that he runs um, that business. It's, it's I think, um, you know, when we talk about the future of work and we talk about is big enough enough, um, you know, I think that um, he's a thought leader and certainly um, a leader in terms of uh, creating an organization that's very different. And and I think he has a couple of principles. Firstly, they have no goals, which is, you know, almost heresy in an organization. <laughs> um, you know, I, I heard him um, interviewed recently and he was saying that, you know, if you have goals, you're always constantly dissatisfied because, you know, you're either not meeting them or you meet them and then the goals go up and then you don't meet them and then the goals go up and then you're happy and then you meet them. <laughs> and, you know, you're on this end of cycle. And I, and I think that's really interesting. One of the analogies he uses is that he really liked running until he started mm. timing himself. Oh, and wow. uh, he used to just enjoy the activity of running, but once he started timing himself, then he sort of was disappointed that he wasn't hitting, hitting particular milestones. But one thing he did say that sort of resonated with me and, and certainly um, I think agrees with what you're saying is that at base camp, they request people's time. They don't actually assign tasks. Yeah. So they say, you know, Chris, I, I can I can I please have some of your time to do mm. this particular task? And you can choose to give that time or not give that time. And it's a it's, it's sort of a slightly different take on how companies run. 
And, yeah. and I think it's I think it's partly based on that idea of commitment, agreement, alignment, and that ultimately people need to be bought in mm-hmm. to wanting to do something rather than, you know, that have this sort of fluffy miscommunication that am I doing it, are you doing it, nobody's doing it, I don't want to do it. Um, you know, all of the various um, potential conflict points and misalignment yep. points that are going to occur inside an organisation. And so so what happened? You're ahead of your time? Yeah, once again, um, there's another component to it that I don't want to get into too much because I'm still working on it. Right. Um, but it was actually connecting those commitments to performance management right. and moving into real-time performance management, which, of course, right now is a really huge thing. And so mm. five years ahead on that one. And, and you know, there, there's a few people who worked on the commitment-based management stuff over the years. There's a couple of books that have been written around mm. it, Flores and, uh, oh, I always forget the last guy's, second guy's name. But uh, there's some really interesting stuff out there. Um, but anyways, I went from that to basically, you know, going, what am I going to do next? And uh, spending a little bit of time in depression because that was a big one. And we, you know, we borrowed money from the family and, uh, you know, a couple of angels, not many, but, you know, friends uh, took 5000 from or 2500 yeah. Not a lot of money either, but... Uh, I just, you know, felt beholden to that. And uh, I, you know, still I'm trying to set them right on the next deals that I get set up to give them a chance to get in. Um, but anyways, I was depressed for a while after that because it was really rough. And I was right. I, I still know I'm right. I just executed wrong. Mm. But I learned from that experience a lot of things, one of which was actually uh, how to um, make decisions with co-founders. And so that's a bit of uh, what we're going to be hopefully having a chance to talk more about over the coming months, because uh, it's something I think more people need to learn. But part of the basis of it was just getting into that, do we have enough data to make the decision and actually recognizing when we don't. So if we have three options on the table and there's three founders talking about it, then we've got to, we've got to choose. We can't just like put this off. I can't just choose arbitrarily because I'm CEO because I know the other two guys I'm working with are super smart people and they're not saying what they're saying for kicks you know they're, they're saying it because they believe it um so anyway so we'd look at the options and, and lay down a bunch of criteria and try to wait it out and, and then if we couldn't really come to a conclusion even on that i'd say okay let's just go with yours or let's go with mine this time and let's test it and it's going to be a test and let's see and we'll find out once we get more data uh, or can we find more data and anyways so getting into that test and learn culture which i had never learn from any job because I didn't have a job and I never got into a big startup, even though I met Larry Page when they only had about 35 employees mm. and was laughing at him that uh, hot, um, not hot bot, hot wire, no, not hot wire, hot bot. Yeah. Mm. Hot bot was so far ahead of them and Lycos was such a great <laughs> search engine. What's this googly thing? That's not going to be anything. Um, but anyways, yeah. I've had a lot of those experiences. 2020 20, 20 hindsight. And you've got, a, you've had a relationship with Google. Uh, yeah, actually, I've been uh, very fortunate to also learn the Google way since. And so coming out of the depression and starting to do some consulting work with uh, Expedia, basically in HomeAway, working on some ecosystem thinking with them. Uh, and then one of my friends, uh, one, actually one of my wife's former colleagues from a startup in Israel, uh, Barack, actually introduced me to the Google Launchpad team. And I became a mentor there and went through a few sessions and quickly became one of the lead mentors that they were flying around all the different programs. And you know, that's really how I ended up here as an EIR because my experience in helping all these startups from around the world, which was really the fascinating part. I mean, we had people from South America, from all across Asia, Eastern Europe, Africa, mm. like some great stuff coming out of Kenya and uh, Nigeria, like crazy. 
And uh, of course, because our regulations are different, they're able to do things that we couldn't do in the U.S. Okay. So there was a lot of old ideas that I kind of had been throwing around over the years. And I was actually able to give them some of these ideas for them to go try in their own countries because it was easy to do there. Oh, yeah, I know the, I know the minister of education. Yeah, he's helping us. And it's like, okay, okay. well, here's an idea for how to reform education and what we can do, right? Um, so connecting the dots again and doing that pattern synthesis. Um, but I also saw a lot of the challenges of these programs because trying to get uh, a bunch of companies, and in some cases with the Google program, we had 40 or 50 in, uh, for some of these. They were huge. Um, but try to get them all through the class, and they're all at different stages. Yeah, they can benefit from the education. They certainly do. But customizing and serving their specific needs at that specific moment when everyone's at a different place, that's really hard to do out of an accelerator. And we've been trying to do the best we can here with that. Um, and of course, that's done through office hours and the one-on-one -on -one with the mentors. And we're fortunate to have good mentors like you as a part of the program and Peter Laurie and Ian Mason. And so we have a really strong group of people who care about founders, care about founders' health, founders' mental health, mm. and building, as you say, capacity and capability. And how do we do that? And we actually, in our first call, agreed to that as our foundational kind of driving force to it. And so I'm looking at the class now in week nine, and they've really matured a lot in that way. They've been having a great fun with it. Um, and they've been learning along the way. So it's been positive for them. But at the same time, I know it could be even better. And I know more importantly that there are, in this particular group, I think they turned away 30 or 40 people who couldn't come in because there wasn't enough room for it. But there's hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of startups that aren't getting the access to this mentorship and to this insight. And it's really the wisdom of our experience that can prevent them from making the same mistakes we made. And that was one of my driving things. I don't want people to have to do the stupid things I've done before. I don't want people to beat themselves up as much as I did uh, when I was depressed and made bad decisions or just executed poorly or whatever else. And also to let them know that it's okay and that it's more okay for them to call somebody to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And um, anyways, that's why I really love what you're doing with Founder Circles and, and that other bit on that. Uh, but uh, what I really see, and, and that's where we, we started uh, Mentor Bureau earlier this year, right before coming here uh, to Brisbane. And the idea is it's a network sort of agency model of mentors helping startups and corporate innovation groups and other people figure out how to actually start and grow new ideas into businesses mm -hmm. that are going to be successful and continue to grow. But we're focused really uh, because we have the choice on companies that are really working to make a better world. So not necessarily all of the cigarette and gun manufacturers, sure. those moral hazard companies <laughs> like that. But uh, entrepreneurs and founders today more than ever are interested in social enterprise of some kind. And that doesn't mean not-for-profit. No, it doesn't. Um, so how do we create profitable, sustainable organizations that create good in the world and really, you know, meet that kind of triple bottom line, uh, people profit, I'm sorry, yeah, people profit planet. Right? Yeah, it, and it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, we've both had the privilege of working with a lot of entrepreneurs and I think one of the things that has definitely stood out for me when I have met an entrepreneur that has, has been – I think above the bar in terms of sort of standard is they're really, really connected with purpose. So, yes. you know, they have an authentic connection with the problem they're solving. It doesn't have to be curing malaria, um, but, you know, the, those entrepreneurs who are all in on their – 
their purpose and understand their why and, you know, I think have that authenticity of sort of, you know, connection with the problem, they tend to weather the, the storm a little bit better because, yes. you know, they have they have a longer-term vision and they understand why they're actually in their startup with a lot more clarity than somebody who just sort of sees a market opportunity and kind of sees some dollar signs. And, and so for me, that's really interesting. Um, you know, we've we've also had the privilege of working on a lot of incubator and accelerator programs. They're all very different. Um, you know, I think one of the things we've spoken about a lot, and and you know, I sort of I sort of tend to agree with you that you know that the nut hasn't really been cracked yet. You know, so yeah. everybody's sort of doing their best. Um, I think that um, you know there is such a high there's a high percentage of avoidable failure in the startup yes. world there, there is a there's a lot of unavoidable failure you know timing we've both experienced that you know you know execution mistakes you know poor selection of of um idea or you know no you know improper value model or, or business proposition um you know but for me there is definitely a science and an art Mm-hmm. Um, to starting a small business, you know, a startup, um, and, and really sort of qualifying and quantifying that and being able to deliver that at the right pace for different people at different times. Um, at the moment, it's sort of a bit of a spray and pray, in my view, in a lot of in a lot of programs. Um, you know, one of the things that um, you know we've sort of spoken about, and, and I think needs to be solved, is is that how do you do that must customization, and how do you mm-hmm. scale the learning, and and really sort of create a syllabus that is robust enough that meets everybody's needs, but that at the same time is flexible enough so that you know if you're a later stage business or you're a different kind of founder, um, that you're still going to get something out of it. Yeah, well, and, and that's really the goal of MentorView. I saw all these different things that could be done better. And in fact, one of the great things of working with Google is that I actually worked with the team throughout that time to like fix things on the fly. And mm. we would just go ahead and correct the program or add in different elements. And they were a really amazing group of people I was able to work with there because they were constantly looking at how do we make it better? How do we run experiments? You know, building it basically on the idea. First of all, it was a no equity accelerator program right mm. so they were just doing it giving away the cloud credits doing that sort of thing trying to get you know grow the google ecosystem so to speak um, but they were also doing it so they could get access to new tech and advancing their tensorflow technology and they're still doing it to this day i got invited to a couple of them while i was here that i wasn't able to go to um, but the, the but the real problem really comes down to the fact of the getting the right people together mm. and in the same way that you know, one of the biggest problems in startup failures is actually co-founder uh, problems and it, co-founder chemistry is one element of it. Um, so figuring out how to make decisions and create a, a better decision-making system and culture is a big part, I think, of that. Um, but to the point of the uh, different needs of everyone, it, it, it really has to be at its own pace. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of School of One that came out of New York a few years ago. The mm-hmm. Freakonomics podcast talked about it. It was basically Pandora for learning. And I think that sort of concept is what really needs to be applied to the startup growth path. Um, It also needs to be removed from the idea of the next unicorn. Uh, because right now the VC game is completely rigged. And one of the things that we realized very early is that human capital is greater than venture capital. And in fact, what does venture capital go to now when cloud cost is relative zero? It goes to paying smart people to get them to work together. Well, what are other ways we can get smart people working together? 
And that's where this idea of the zero employee company comes up. And we're kind of working on it right now with Mentor Bureau. Right now, there are no employees in Mentor Bureau. Um, you know, there's literally just a bunch of really smart people who I know I've had the pleasure of working with who have done some great things that I invited in because I trust them. And they've agreed to come along for the ride and try to figure it out with me. Will they all stay? Probably not. That's not how it works. Everyone's got things to do and their own ideas. But, um, you know, that's one path to doing it. And the other bit is that I'm not trying to be a billionaire in it. I'm trying to create something that's sustainable that I need. I need to have smart people to work with. I want to work with more smart people doing greater projects. I want to make more money so I can live. And I want more opportunities. And I could see that in my life, I was very fortunate, as you are, we essentially have three dials that we can do. We can actually turn up the income and get more income on a project and ask for a lot more money. We can take equity for that and come in as an angel or advisor and we can give money even, or we can make impact. And I really obviously like it when I can do all three. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, in surveying a bunch of the mentors and, and people, when I first started the outreach on this, I reached out to 750 people or so on LinkedIn, 140 responded to the survey, which is a crazy high number. Um, and out of those, it was something like 95% wanted a mix of equity and cash. So how do we, how do we facilitate that? And so that's what, one of the things I'm working towards with this. Um, but at the end of the day, I, what, coming back to your original question, I think it's that I, I, it's okay to create a business that's not going to be a unicorn. In fact, it's actually, I think, more important to just start something that's going to be a value that you're going to enjoy, that you have that purpose and passion connected to. And if you're able to find that and find something that makes you happy and enables you to live the kind of life you want, that's great. You don't need to meet other people's ideas of, you know, being the next Facebook or next Google. If you have something that does that, that's fantastic. But searching for that and spending all your money and burning out people and, you know, forcing them to work 80 hours, 90 hours a week when they've got a kid on the way or a kid at home or something. That's, that's just kind of, to me, I, I think one day history will look back and say, that was a really fucked up period of time when people were doing that that way. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really interesting point to dwell on, you know, this idea of chasing the unicorn, because for a very long time, even to that, till today, you know, the, the entire venture capital community is very much skewed around finding the next unicorn. And that isn't really a sustainable business model and it certainly doesn't look at sustainability more broadly. And, you know, you and I have discussed, you know, the idea of lifestyle business, like God forbid yeah. that you talk about a lifestyle <laughs> business, right? Um, but again, Basecamp is a great example of that. You know, they hire 30, 30, 40 people. They make enough money that, you know, they're self-funded. They don't have to take external capital. They were profitable almost from day one. They've got 100,000 customers. They do what they want. They're in control of their own destiny. You, you could not say that Basecamp is not a successful company. It certainly is a successful company. It has no venture capital money. I think they, they sold a little bit of their early stock to Bezos. Um, however, um, you know, their overall philosophy is we just want to create a sustainable business that feeds our family, that allows us to do great work with really interesting people. We're not interested in an exit event. We're not interested in, you know, listing the business and, you know, taking venture money and being answerable to other people. Um, and, and I think that's, I think that's, um, it's a burgeoning part of the industry. Yes. And, and, you know, as, as you've sort of said to me on many occasions, you know, this idea of creating, 
you know, micro sustainable businesses that may not necessarily be a global brand name or a unicorn, but, you know, create real value in the world, solve a real problem and, and feed somebody's family. And, yeah. you know, many people's family in a lot of cases is, is also true entrepreneurialism and is startup in every sense of the word. Yeah, and I just wrote about this recently in the entrepreneurship imperative, and it it really does come down on uh, changing mind shift in people, but it's also incumbent upon the institutions to start changing how they're serving people. And so QUT here is starting a bigger entrepreneurial initiative, I know. Uh, they've got three co-working spaces set up on campus that are about to open. Um, you know, and we're seeing that from more and more universities where entrepreneurship is being taught. Unfortunately, in many cases, it's being taught by academics, not by people who have been through it. But they are bringing in guest lecturers. I've had a chance to guest lecture in a couple of uh, classes that we've had here and see that. But even, uh, you know, the government policies right now are getting better towards encouraging entrepreneurship. But they're all still trying to make the next unicorn. I mean, Thailand, one of the interesting things was, is that's the big theme literally throughout the entire Texas conference I was at, is they're looking for the first Thailand unicorn. Yeah. And it's like, or it's like, okay, great. It's a great goal. But like everyone working towards that, I don't know. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I mean, hopefully they'll make one and they'll be happy. And then they'll have 10 of them, like Roger Bannister in the four-minute mile. Once you get one, you get a lot of them. Mm. Um, but what, what I see happening more often than not is it's like basically people putting jet fuel in a lawnmower. Mm. And unless the system and the machine is ready to actually scale and run at that pace, pouring money in is just setting the thing on fire and letting it explode. And the person pushing it or riding it is going to get burned in the process. And I think one of the things that um, if you look at it from a macroeconomic uh, trend perspective or a thematic you know, if we look at the future of work, certainly, you know, I almost hate the term startup, to be really honest, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we're really talking about, you know, small businesses at the end of the day is really the target. Um, yeah, of course, like a startup, as sort of Steve Blank says, is sort of, you know, it's an idea in search of a sort of a scalable, repeatable, you know, profitable business model. Mm -hmm. um, but, the, but that being said, I think, you know, the mindset of startups um, to a certain degree is, um, you know, a little, a little tainted, you yeah. know, in terms of sort of what it represents in terms of the hustle culture and, you know, you know, trying to strive for unicorn status and valuations and, and total amount of capital invested and all of those things that are essentially the sideshow to really creating value. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, my view on, on a country like Thailand, for example, is that if you want to have a, if, if you want to have a true impact on the economy, you know, then you need to create a lot of micro businesses and you actually want to, want you want to create sustainable entrepreneurship. You don't necessarily need a unicorn to to massively change the economy in terms of overall net wealth for its citizens and GDP and all of those sort of things. And I think when you look at somebody like, somewhere like Australia, where we're actually seeing, you know, people who are very nomadic in in what they do. I mean, I'm, I'm one of them, you know, you're one of them, you know, I've, I work inside large organizations and I've worked for myself and I've oscillated back and forth between the two um, because I'm comfortable in both environments. And you know, it depends on the opportunities that present themselves. And I think that, you know, I speak to a lot of large organizations about talent development and future work. And one of the things I, I sort of say to them is that you need to be thinking about your alumni. Um, you need to be mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, you look at a company like Deloitte, for example, where, you know, the idea of, you know, you're going to be a partner for life and, you know, you're going to, you know, in 10 years, all of this will be yours, mm -hmm. um, I think is long gone. And I think that, you know, there's a generation of people inside professional services who are quite comfortable getting to the level of, you know, manager and director and 
and going client side and, you know, working in a strategy department at a bank and then maybe starting their own thing. And one of the things I've spoken to the leaders of professional services organizations is how do you attract that talent back into the firm after it's been out and got some, after they've been out and got some scar tissue and and, and some experience that you really want to reintegrate back into your organization and then you want to be able to release it. And and this idea of sort of being able to create a, a nomadic environment um, I think rests on a basic set of entrepreneurial skills. So people who are going to succeed mm-hmm. in those environments moving forward are people who have, you know, that that sort of emotional awareness, who have resiliency, who have adaptability, um, you know, those core behavioural traits um, that allow people to be chameleons to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, broadly, yes. Um, but it also requires the culture and the systems in place that mm-hmm. are transparent enough for people to be able to believe in. Um, because all too often those seven points on the back of the corporate mission card are not real. They're just points that sound good, that are aspirational, and they're not lived and they're not built into the systems. So the thing that drives people out of organizations is the hypocrisy inside of those systems. And so um, this separately, but uh, well, kind of related, but I was thinking of this as you were expressing the uh, experienced hire problem, which is what Deloitte called it, because I was one Mm. who's already been out and doing other stuff coming in at a higher level than I would if I started out from school. And uh, on the exit interview, they asked me, because uh, I left after two years and it was a couple of months, mm. and like, what could we have done to keep you longer? I, I said, well, make the uh, signing bonus for three years instead of two. Right. <laughs> that would have kept me for three years instead of two because I would have stayed for it. Sure. Because um, I made a commitment to do that. But my commitment I had fulfilled and I realized I couldn't do any more of what I really wanted to do. I tried to work on creating a couple of new business opportunities inside, one of which was team coaching, mm. which now is actually a very big thing that's going on instead of just project management. Uh, I was trying to help build a uh, virtual assistant program because I had the thought that, wow, here's Deloitte, one of the most trusted brands in the world. Their accountants and their they have this trust in their brand, and they have the ability to do compliance and keep everyone, you know, away from conflicts of interest and do all that work that they've set up obviously exceptionally well. I mean, I had to move all of my money around to different banks because we were auditing the banks and I had no <laughs> auditing business. Right, so I went through that personally. But um, you weren't money laundering. No, 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 no. They didn't go through the Caribbean that time, that time. Um, But, but the point was, is I'm like, we should, we should really open a virtual assistant like service Mm. because there's a lot of people like me in these organizations who don't, I I don't qualify for an assistant inside of Deloitte. I was Mm. lower. I was a specialist leader, which is right below director or whatever. um, But I didn't qualify for an assistant, but I needed an assistant. I spent, you know, a ridiculous amount of time entering my time and my expenses every week that I should not, that was not the right use of my time. And I, and I just knew that there were thousands and hundreds of thousands of other professionals like me who could really use a fractional assistant. And wow, Deloitte, we could we could actually charge for this and make some real money on this. Hey, we're doing all this development in India anyways and outsourcing tech development. Why not, you know, outsource this component? Because we have the trust of being let into 
these corporate email systems to see some of these sensitive emails and stuff. Anyways, it, I just couldn't find anyone to give attraction. And again, that's part of finding the right people, right? And, yeah, and, and again, and to allies. starting business, how do you find the allies? How do you find that co-founder chemistry? Mm. How do we get aligned? And how do we have that shared purpose and vision? Mm. But, you know, the visions um, inside most of the firms, as you know, ends up being focused on making my contribution for the quarter so I can get the car for the wife and I can pay for the tuition for the three kids going off to an expensive university. And, you know, it gets focused on those sorts of things. And I, I don't be default. I don't fault anyone for that. That's the way the game has been set up around the world in society. And, uh, you know, we have to we have to play to win. Um, just some of us are more comfortable with, you know, maybe being broke or paying an extra $12,000 a year of interest on my credit card debt. And, and I don't think any, I don't think anybody's comfortable being broke. Um, but look, we've, we've touched on a lot of subjects. I mean, yeah. and, you know, and, and you've sort of mentioned, you know, things like the zero employee company and, and you know, this idea that, you know, people are going to be nomadic. You know, it's probably a, it's a good point to sort of, sort of land on in terms of what do you believe is the future of work? So, you know, if you look forward sort of, five or 10 years, you know, what, what, firstly, you know, what ideally do you think both companies and universities and individuals need to be thinking about in terms of the future of work? And, you know, is that skills, is it systems, is it, is it flexibility? You know, there's a lot of perspectives in terms of, you know, what the future of work will look like. Um, What's your view? Um, that's a complex thing. You know, I'm an IBM futurist as well. And, and actually, uh, collaboration, uh, I was, I was one of the few who was working on both the future of collaboration as well as the future of work. I'm sorry, the future of marketing as well as the future of work. Um, really the most complicated part, and I speak to this in the entrepreneurial imperative article that I wrote recently is the automation is going to be eliminating like hundreds of thousands, millions of jobs that just are never going to come back. Mm. It's pretty much like going from fossil fuel industry to all green and renewable. There's jobs that are just disappearing. Uh, The the market won't need them anymore. Um, So we're going to have to find uh, new paths. And I do believe that the three opportunities really lie in STEM broadly because we're going to have to keep the machines running. We're going to have to write the code. We're going to have to make things work better and smarter and continue to fix that sort of stuff. Um, Health and well-being. Because the one thing we can do better than robots is actually have empathy for each other and and show that. And then the other one is creative industries. Mm. Um, I wouldn't normally have used that term if it wasn't the term here for the accelerator that I'm I'm running in, creative industries, um, because it's really kind of liberal arts 2.0. It's all the things that that humans can do. It's art, it's music, it's theater, it's movies, uh, it's clothing, it's fashion, it's it's, it's design agencies, it's so many different things. Um, But speaking to the, the broader issue of the future of work, I do believe that it is going to be more, well, first of all, we have to understand that there are people who do not have entrepreneurial or leadership ability, nor do they want it. They want to just be able to make a living and live a happy life. And so that's the other bit of a lot of the entrepreneurial talk is like telling everyone they can be an entrepreneur and you should do this and you've got to go out and get this and hustle, 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 24 and a half hour workday and all that crap, right? Um, That's not for everyone. Let everyone choose, first of all, but they've got to contribute something to society. So there are going to be some forms of employees or contractors, Um, whether or not they're employees in the organization or working independently. I think that's going to be kind of up to them and up to the individuals. Um, But on the other side of it, talking about the zero employee company and others, you know, we've gotten to a point where we can stand up a brand new SaaS software product for $5,000. 
if we get the brain power together to figure out what it needs to do, what it needs to look like, how we explain the story and start making connections to people to try it out and start building that business. And it can be built with literally just labor. So if we can find a way to create new equity models, which is what I'm working on with Mentor Bureau um, and some other opportunities I've been talking to, um, I think that's going to be the real future of it. And what it's relying upon is what Doug Kirkpatrick and the folks over at the Self-Management Institute have been doing and understanding what a self-managing organization looks like, where it's up to the individuals to actually have the power to make decisions when, hey, this tractor I'm riding, this is broken. I need to get a new one because we can't keep fixing it like this. It's downtime is too much. I'm not producing what I need to produce with this given piece of equipment. Um, so how do we give people more of that power? Uh, you know, I, I used to always give uh, a lot of the big companies shit for um, like, do you trust your employees when we're trying to get them on social media or something? You hired them, right? Like they went through a, a good hiring. Is your hiring process good? Uh, no, it's shit. Um, oh, okay. Um, well, in that case, and you can't trust them, A lot right? of organizations do not trust their employees. <laughs> no, no, they do not. <laughs> and, you know, and that's just kind of wild. So we're going to need to get to a place where that trust is built in, where HR is actually about empowering people, not risk mitigation. Um, and where the systems and, and ability for people to talk with each other honestly about things and transparently, even when they have some personal interest in something, uh, is the norm. Because uh, otherwise, we're just going to keep having politics and have this inefficient system and people are going to keep getting burned and companies are going to keep failing in bad ways that they didn't need to fail for. And so uh, I see it as more collaborative, more cooperative. I see it more as uh, more profit sharing, equity, without necessarily the governance too, by the way. It's more about what I, what I also call Vivo or Vivo, sort of like Gigo sort of thing, but it's value in, value out. What's the value I contributed? I should get the value out. And the last point I want to put in on this is uh, a lot of this thinking I really picked up from Tom Chi, who was one of the original uh, guys running Google X. And he left there to form a, or to work with a group called The Factory. And so he's, he was working on various models of like, uh, looking at like a super engineer who is the only guy who can write a given algorithm because he did something when he was a kid and he figured it out. And, and he comes in and he can solve this problem that you've been trying to solve for three years. He can solve it in two weeks. Then what do you do? You keep him around for four years to vest his stock to get his equity. So this brilliant person is locked up in a shitty job maintaining a piece of code he wrote once that only took him a week instead of creating the next genius piece of code that could be doing more. So we need new models to unleash the full capacity of the talent of the earth. And that would be one in which, in this case, the suggestion was, let the ownership of the IP be co-owned by the individual and the organization. So if the individual is continuing to be treated well by the organization and the organization is using it properly and fruitfully and profitably that they could and ethically in terms of the way they think it should be used, then you can just go ahead and continue to be a part of it or you can leave if he gets upset with how it's being done and go try to start something else and do something differently. And, and, and everybody benefits from that. And, and look, I, I'm really excited, I think, about – you know, what the next five years holds yes. for us. Um, you know, uh, I think adjacent to all of this is, you know, some of the work that Cal Newport's done with his book, Deep Work, in terms of, you know, the counter to all of this is the decreased attention span and our inability to concentrate and all of the various distractions <laughs> that are actually, you know, ultimately in inhibiting us from from our natural human talents because the machines to a certain degree are coming for us, as as you've sort of said, and I would I would concur, you know, there are, there are going to be millions of jobs lost to, to machines 
machines that are smarter than us, and that's the right thing to do from an evolutionary standpoint. So, what are the things that are uniquely human? You know, Correct. in terms of creativity, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of STEM and, and intelligence. So, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank um, you. Today, I'd, I'd love to sort of finish off with just a couple of rapid fire questions, sure. if you don't mind. Um, do you have a favorite book? Uh, Four Agreements. Four Agreements. Are you an iPhone or Android guy? iPhone. Why? Uh, because I got a Mac SE in college 30 years ago, and here I am today. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite podcast or TED Talk? Um, you know, I really like Simon Sinek's Start With Why. I think that was very important for me. I got a few others, but uh, that's the first one that comes to mind. If you could invite somebody to dinner, living or dead, who would it be? Hmm. 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 JFK. I'd, I'd like to understand what his real vision was for the future of the world because I don't think we ever saw it. Yeah, somebody who got, 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 got cut short in their prime. Yes. Um, if there's somebody you'd like to thank publicly, um, you know, express some gratitude, you know, who's somebody who's helped you along your journey who you'd like to sort of shout out to and say thank you? Oh, God, there's so many. Um, there really are. There's literally thousands of people. Um, I, you know, when we built Social Media Club, I slept on couches going around the world. So there's Pierre and, and uh, oh, gosh, uh, so many names. I can't even see them all. I see, you know, I've gotten to the point where I know so many people. I see their faces and I can't remember the damn <laughs> name. And it really is shitty. But um, there's so many people who took care of me. Um, Tom Coates, uh, my professor from... Uh, 11th grade English, great inspiration, taught me I could write, even though I failed, uh, what was it, 7th, 8th, and almost ninth grade English, because uh, I couldn't write. Um, and uh, of course, uh, my wife for putting up with me and, and staying with this. Absolutely. The wife of an entrepreneur is uh, a challenging one for sure. Yeah. Um, where, can more, where, where can people find more out about you? Well, uh, chrishoyer.com is my main website. Not that it's been updated in a while, but uh, it's still there. Uh, also, follow me on Twitter there. It's Chris Hoyer pretty much everywhere. LinkedIn, Instagram. Yeah, except here in Australia, whenever you do the search, you see Chris Hemsworth and Tag Hoyer. So I kind of got beat out by them uh, on yeah, Google. And not related to either of them. No, unfortunately no. not. No. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your generosity. It's been a pleasure working with you during the course of this program and i um, really looking forward to what's next for you. Thank you. Likewise. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Chris's episode. He has so much depth on this subject, I've got to talk to him for hours. If you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe to make sure you get all the latest episodes. Have a great week, and don't forget to take care of yourself.